Welcome to the One Climbs Podcast, a show about exploring life through the lens of theology, scripture, symbolism, and ideas that uplift the human mind. Recently, somebody commented on one of my posts about Nephi and Daniel, and I, I guess it's because of Come Follow Me, everyone's reading about Daniel and they're doing searches online. And I guess they came across this article I published earlier this year. And this was not connected with any of the come follow me materials, but I was basically just going through and reading the book of Mormon and some different thoughts came to mind. And so I decided to put those down. And as I got thinking about it, this comment, I started thinking more and more about a discussion I had had with my daughters about how Nephi seems to go back to scriptural heroes and looks at their experiences and draws strength from their experiences and then uses those to forge his own pathway forward in life, especially when he's in difficult situations. And I know of, I knew at the time of at least maybe three to four, but then I decided, you know, let me dig a little deeper and let me see if there's even more that I can find. And thus far, I've got about seven to nine different specific scriptural heroes that Nephi basically leverages to his advantage in life. I think this is really fascinating. Two of these I think are kind of a stretch. But I'll explain why I think maybe there's something there that we could look into. So first, I want to read this little portion from Nephi. Listen to what he says here. He says, Now it came to pass that I, Nephi, did teach my brethren these things. And it came to pass that I did read many things to them, which were engraven upon the plates of brass, that they may know concerning the doings of the Lord in other lands among people of old. So he reads to his people from whatever's on the brass plates. And this is 1 Nephi 19, 22 and 23. In verse 23, he says, I did read many things unto them which were written in the book of Moses, that I might full, more fully persuade them to believe in the Lord their Redeemer. I did read unto them that which was written by the prophet Isaiah, for I did liken all scriptures unto us, that it might be for our profit and learning. So here he is doing this deliberately. So we know that he deliberately read the books of Moses and whatever prophet, the prophet Isaiah had written, and he's trying to persuade them to bring, to believe in the Lord. And he's likening the scriptures to them. And what does that mean? He's, he's looking at the scriptures and he's trying to find similarities between what they experienced back then and what they were experiencing at the present time for their profit and learning so that not just so that they could go, Oh, that was interesting, but I believe it was so that they could act upon those things. And that's how it would be for their actual profit. So the seven to nine that I have picked out are, I believe at least these. So we have Joseph, Moses, David, Daniel, maybe Aaron, her and Noah, and then Solomon, Isaiah and Samuel. And I do think there's some evidence for each one of these, but I think it's strongest for at least seven 
And then there's it's a little bit of a stretch for Aaron Her, Aaron slash Her and Noah, but I'll explain why I included them on this list. So the first one, again, we're gonna be going into Joseph. What is it about Joseph where Nephi feels a connection to him and draws some strength? So Nephi's brothers rebelled against their father. And that's a whole different podcast about all the dynamics that were going on at the time. But suffice to say, they rebelled, but Nephi, he sought guidance from the Lord. And so the Lord tells Nephi, inasmuch as thou shalt keep my commandments, thou shalt be made a ruler and a teacher over thy brethren. So Nephi is told that if he remains righteous and faithful, that he will be placed above his brethren as a ruler. And I can't help but think that his mind was drawn back to the story of Joseph, who was in that same scenario where Joseph was the youngest brother and he gained the favor of the Lord and the Lord placed him as a ruler. Let's look at Genesis 37, six through eight. And so Joseph says to his brothers, please listen to this dream, which I've had for behold, we were binding sheaves in the field and behold, my sheaf stood up and remained standing and behold, your sheaves gathered around and bowed down to my sheaf. And then his brother said to him, are you actually going to reign over us? Or are you really going to rule over us? So they hated him even more for his dreams and for his words. That's very similar to what's happening with Laman and Lemuel. And and perhaps Laman and Lemuel, they thought of this story as well. And they're thinking, well, maybe Nephi is trying to put himself in the same position as Joseph and use that as an excuse to try to rule over us out here in the wilderness. Like he's taking advantage of this opportunity. He's looking at their father as a Jacob or Israel figure and himself as Joseph. And he's putting himself into that role and stealing their birthright. And they're basically being relegated to these, these lesser tribes, so to speak. And I'm I'm very, very confident that these individuals knew their history and they grew up with these stories and they knew these things. But here Nephi is hearing the words of the Lord saying that this pattern is going to continue with you. You're going to be made a ruler and a teacher over your brethren in this way. And so in this case, I feel like Nephi is drawing on the experience, the experiences of Joseph. Now, Joseph was taken by his brothers, sold into slavery. He was treated very poorly by his brothers and Nephi in the same light, he's also treated poorly by his brothers, but Nephi is also going to remember what happened that Joseph went into captivity, but he was delivered from that. And he ended up saving his family. And we're going to come back to this again. There's actually another time we're going to, we're going to come back to this experience of Joseph. I'm just going chronologically through Nephi's experience. So a couple of these we're actually going to hit a couple of times because they come into play multiple times with some of these individuals. And Joseph is one of them. So let's go next. Where's this first Nephi four, one through three. And this is where Nephi is now turning to Moses as a figure. So Nephi says, let us go up again to Jerusalem and let us be faithful in keeping his, the commandments of the Lord for behold, he, the Lord is mightier than all the earth. Then why not mightier than Laban and his 50, yea, even than his tens of thousands. 
Therefore, let us go up, let us be strong like unto Moses. For he truly spake unto the waters of the Red Sea, and they divided hither and thither. And our fathers came through out of captivity on dry ground. And the armies of Pharaoh did follow and were drowned in the waters of the Red Sea. Now behold, you know that this is true, and you know that an angel hath spoken unto you. Wherefore can ye doubt? Let us go up, for the Lord is able to deliver us, even as our fathers, and destroy Laban, even as the Egyptians. So here, Nephi is framing their situation as being similar, if not identical, to Moses and Pharaoh. Laban is like the Pharaoh. They are like Moses. And they're saying that not only is God going to deliver them and make this possible, he's going to, you know, if even if the Laban and his men follow them, they're, they're going to be some type of equivalent, drown in the Red Sea as Pharaoh and his armies, or the armies of Pharaoh were at least. And so he's telling his brothers, you know, this is true. So again, they grew up with these stories. They know these things. And he's throwing out there that an angel has spoken to them as well. So he's asking them, why can you doubt? So here in this difficult situation that Nephi's faced with, this very unusual situation where they're out in the desert with their family, they're being told Jerusalem's going to be destroyed, this city of God, and they got to go back, get this record, and confront this uh, very scary and threatening figure. But they're looking back and saying, look, God did it with Moses. He's commanded us to do this now. If he was able to deliver Moses from that situation, from the king, then surely us, our small group of people, he's going to deliver us from this man, Laban, and his 50, right? His, his 50 men, or even then his tens of thousands. Now, whether Laban commanded tens of thousands or not is unknown, but it seems that Nephi's indicated even if there were tens of thousands, that God would still be able to deliver them. Anyway, so he's going back there. He's using the scriptures to draw his strength because the scriptures are not just about Moses and about Pharaoh. What Nephi sees is he sees the character of God being manifest in these stories. Look what God did for them. And the focus is what God did for these people and what God will do for them today. So they don't need to be so concerned about the situation and whoever's involved and how scary they may be because God is above all of them. That's what he says. He is mightier than all the earth, Nephi says. Now we come to David, and this is the same David that is King David. This is particularly the David and Goliath story, I think, that is is being referenced here very, very subtly. Now, I do believe this one is, some may say this is a little bit of a stretch. I don't think it is, and I'll explain why. This is 1 Nephi chapter 4. This is where Nephi is standing there, and, and Laban, the scary figure, is laying at his feet dressed in armor, just like David and Goliath. Except in this case, Nephi, it just comes across Laban there, and he's drunk laying on the ground. And so what Nephi says is he says that he was constrained by the spirit that he should kill Laban. But then he says in his heart, you know, never at any time have I shed the blood of man and I shrunk that I might not slay him. And he's like, no, 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 I, I'm not, I'm not a killer. I mean, think about it. This was the man that tried to kill him and his brothers. He tried to kill his older brother twice 
first when he went by himself and then when they all went together he stole their property this is an evil man this is a man that according to the law of moses would have been put to death for multiple things that he did to nephi's family but he was constrained by the spirit he says so he recognizes the spirit of the lord also constraining him but he backs down he doesn't want to do it so then the spirit says unto him again now the spirit's actually speaking it's not just a constraining their words are being delivered or ideas are being delivered behold the lord hath delivered him into thy hands and i think that is the key phrase and we'll see it twice behold the lord hath delivered him into thy hands yeah and i also knew that he sought to take away my own life so this is nephi thinking he sought to take away my own life he wouldn't hearken to the commandments of the lord and he had taken away our property i mean that that's a very generous way to put it he had forcefully robbed them laban was a robber which were dealt with by the military and they were put to death for doing that so when it came to pass the spirit again said unto him slay him for the lord hath delivered him into thy hands so there's that phrase again the lord hath delivered him into thy hands now nephi being a student of the scriptures i believe that his mind was drawn directly to these words in the old testament and i think it's obvious why this is the case and i'll explain <clears throat> so nephi i believe was being drawn to first samuel seventeen forty six. this is where david is standing before goliath this young lad david standing before this intimidating warrior in armor and david says to him this day will the lord deliver thee into mine hand and i will smite thee and take thine head from thee okay so these are the words of samuel this day will the Lord deliver thee into mine hand. So we have the Lord delivering into the individual's hands. And so here the spirit says twice, the Lord hath delivered him into thy hands. Lord delivered hands. We see that happen twice, the spirit is saying. And so I believe that emphasis on those phrases finally clicks in Nephi's head because then what happens in verse 51 in, in 1 Samuel 17 says, David ran and stood upon the Philistine. This is after he struck him in the head with a stone. Goliath falls back onto the ground. And David runs up, stands on Goliath, takes out his sword, drew it out of the sheath, and slew him and cut off his head therewith. And this is why I think Nephi, immediately with these words, the Lord hath delivered him into thy hands, was thinking of David, because then it says in 1 Nephi 4.18, Therefore I did obey the voice of the Spirit, I took Laban by the hair of his head and I smote off his head with his own sword. So Nephi, Nephi could have taken the sword and thrust it into Laban's chest or he could have, there's many different ways he could have killed him. He could have choked him, right? He was there laying down and drunk and unconscious. There are many ways he could have killed him. He could have smashed him in the head with a rock or something, but he cuts off his head with his own sword exactly like David slew Goliath. And we see later on that Laban is very much like a Goliath figure in some of Nephi's prophecies and his visions where they see the great and abominable church fall in the last days. And he sees that it's drunk and that it its head will be cut off with its own sword, just like Laban, just like Goliath. And so in this case, the answer to this conundrum, this paradox that he has on his hands is it's very likely he sees the connection between his own situation again and someone from the scriptures and he 
follows almost exactly what that person does, at least in that moment. What follows afterwards, I think, is a little bit of Nephi doing what he talked about being led by the spirit, not knowing beforehand the things I should do and going into the treasury. Cause that's where this, that's the part where the stories diverge. <clears throat> and I think that's a lesson for us in our own lives because our own lives are not going to mirror the stories in the scriptures exactly word for word, experience for experience. But there are these moments where we're presented with a paradox, a difficult situation and where we could go back to what people in the past did when they were confronted with a similar difficult situation. And we get out of that situation with faith in what the Lord did for them then. Now that may open up to a completely different set of circumstances. And it certainly does for Nephi in his journey. Not everything he does is a perfect match with one particular person in the scriptures. And what I'm proposing here is that he's drawing throughout his life from many, 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 many different people in the scriptures at multiple times and in different situations. So he's continually finding value and going back to the scriptures again and again. So now we're back to Joseph again. And this is first Nephi 15, 14. And so Nephi says, it came to pass that my father Lehi found upon the plates of brass, a genealogy of his father's. Wherefore he knew that he was a descendant of Joseph, even, yea, even that Joseph, who was the son of Jacob, who was sold into Egypt. And so here, Nephi is learning this, and I imagine he's feeling an even more powerful connection with Joseph because he's finding out he's a descendant of Joseph. And here's what he says. This Joseph who was sold into Egypt, who was preserved by the hand of the Lord that he might preserve his father Jacob and all his household from perishing with famine. This is going to come into play later again. So look at the words that Nephi focuses on. This is what Nephi has really looked at here. Number one, Joseph was preserved by the hand of the Lord. So Nephi is very big on the Lord preserving him. He knows God's going to preserve him and deliver him. He writes about it like all the time. It's like a, a theme, right? And so Nephi is recognizing this fact and he's putting his trust and faith in it. But also that Joseph might preserve his father, Jacob. And Nephi is very much concerned about preserving his father, Lehi, and being almost a second witness for him in many ways. And all his household from perishing with famine. And we'll see later on, Nephi does just this. When he breaks his bow, he's able to provide food for his family by building another bow and then going to his father. We'll get into that a little bit. But Nephi is continually seeking to preserve his entire household. And he sees himself as fulfilling that role. Let's see, I think it's verse 22. Wherefore, it was wisdom in the Lord that we should carry the brass plates with us as we journeyed in the wilderness toward the land of promise. And this, this land of promise, so now they're carrying this record with them towards the land of promise, just like Moses and Aaron or Joshua even, right? They're at that stage. And later on, we see Moses come down from the mount with the Ten Commandments and these later will go into an ark and they carry these things with them. And so they see themselves, I think, very much on the sacred journey, going towards a promised land. And just like in 
Moses's experience, there's a body of water, actually two bodies of water, one being the Red Sea and one being the Jordan River, the other being the Jordan River. And there's some type of water that needs to be passed in order to get into the promised land. And for Nephi later on, it's actually an ocean. It's a massive body of water. But instead of the ocean parting, there's another way of getting across a ship. So we're going to take a pause from that real quick. And we're going to go to the next one, which is Daniel. So this was the article that was commented on by, uh, I think a couple individuals made comments on it this past week, but it was called Nephi, Daniel and the mysteries of God. So as I'm going through and I'm thinking in my mind, okay, a long time ago, there was this book by Chris Heimerdinger. He wrote the 10 issues in the Nephite series. And then he came out with this book called Nephi and Daniel. And I've never read it. It would be interesting to read that one uh, just to see what it's about. It's probably a, a fictional story. But the premise is that Nephi and Daniel were contemporary, not just contemporaries, they were, but that they knew each other and they went on an adventure or something like that together. And at the time, I remember thinking that I was like, wow, were they really alive at the same time? I'm trying to compare the timelines and I'm going, yeah, they were. And I brought this up in Sunday school today. We we're talking about it. And I brought it some of my thoughts that I had in this particular article. There are some really interesting parallels. And you can go and look at that article and read everything. But what I found interesting is in the very first verse of the Book of Mormon, Nisa Nephi was talking about the mysteries of God. And so I'm like, okay, he's using the word mystery here. And I already know that the the New Testament word mystery comes from the Greek word mysterion, and it it has to do with being initiated into secrets and even visions and dreams. And so I was like, anytime I'm reading the Book of Mormon, I know these are Hebrew speaking people; they're not Greek speaking people. Obviously, the modern Book of Mormon is translating to English, and English has a lot of words from Greek and Latin and all different kinds of languages that make up English or have influenced English. And so we see a lot of the mix of that in the modern Book of Mormon. But whenever I'm trying to find the meanings of words, I'm always going back to the Old Testament using a, the Hebrew of the Strong's Concordance, looking up things. And I realize there's, there doesn't seem to be a word for mysterion, a Hebrew equivalent. So I dug deeper and then I found a Hebrew equivalent of the word mysterion. And it's the word, and I'm not sure how to pronounce this, Raz. But here's the interesting thing. The only place it occurs in the, in the Old Testament is in the book of Daniel in regard to the interpretation of King Nebuchadnezzar's dream. And in this dream, it was laid out this master plan of history and the rise and fall of nations, right? And Nephi has a very similar dream. And where he sees the rise and fall of his own people in his own nations. And he sees a lot of what's happening at the end time. And he actually sees more to this vision that isn't recorded, but that it's indicated that the second half of this vision was written by John and is in our new Testament as the book of revelation. So Nephi's vision is the first part and the book of revelation is the second part. And we know that there's a lot of Daniel's vision that ties into the book of revelation. So I think these three witness accounts at some point 
would be interesting to be compared together and to see what they together show. That's a whole other topic to get into. But Daniel, so Daniel interprets the dream of the king and Nephi interprets the dream of his father. And Daniel says, Daniel 2.36, this is the dream and we will until the interpretation thereof before the king. First Nephi 11, 10 through 11, and the spirit of the Lord said unto me, what desirest thou? And I said to him to know the interpretation thereof. So here we have Nephi and Daniel both interpreting. And if Nephi is in the situation where he sees himself as Joseph figure, but then his father is having dreams. Now his father's sitting there explaining a lot of the dream. So his father doesn't need an interpreter. He's explaining a lot of what he sees in it and what it means, but he didn't explain what the tree meant. Here's the other thing. Nephi does not know the story of Daniel because it hasn't happened yet. This is what's interesting here. So this is where it's, it's a little bit of a divergence because Nephi is not drawing strength from Daniel's story, right? Because this is all happening simultaneously. Nephi has just left Jerusalem. And I think it's 11 more years before they get taken into captivity and they're in Babylon and these things play out. So Nephi's interpreting of dreams actually precedes Daniel's, I would guess. It seems like that would be the case, but they mirror each other. So this one isn't an example of Nephi drawing this from the scriptures, but we see two similar things happening at the same time. So technically this one, I guess is a third one that's a, it doesn't really belong on this list, I don't think, but it's an interesting comparison how because Nephi's following these prophetic examples, like Daniel's experience parallel to Nephi is a witness that they're both tapped into the same source. Interestingly enough, in Daniel's vision, he sees, says, in the days of these kings shall the God of heaven set up a kingdom which shall never be destroyed, and the kingdom shall not be left to other people, but it shall break in pieces and consume all these kingdoms, and it shall stand forever. And Nephi, in his vision, 1 Nephi 13, 1 and 37, it says, and it came to pass, the angel spake to me and said, look, and I looked and beheld many nations and kingdoms. And blessed are they who shall seek to bring forth my Zion at that day, for they shall have the gift and power of the Holy Ghost. And if they endure to the end, they should be lifted up at the last day and should be saved in the everlasting kingdom of the Lamb. So Daniel sees a kingdom that the God of heaven will set up that shall never be destroyed. Nephi sees many nations and kingdoms, as well as Daniel. He sees this kingdom consumes all the others. Nephi sees many nations and kingdoms, but then blessed are they who seek to bring forth my Zion, God's kingdom at the last day and what they'll be blessed with. So here we are in the future, now looking back and we see Daniel and we see Nephi and we see parallel and independent of each other. They're both receiving the same guidance and influence. And that's a testament to how God is the same yesterday and today and forever. And he's not a respecter of persons and he, he equally blesses people overall. What I think is really significant about these individuals is Nephi's family was delivered from the destruction of Jerusalem. Daniel's family, or at least Daniel was not, he went into captivity yet Daniel was persecuted 
But Nephi, even though he was delivered from Jerusalem, he was also persecuted by his brothers. His own brothers became a type of Babylon and Nebuchadnezzar in their own journey. And so Daniel and Nephi, even though they experience deliverance in different ways, they both experience captivity in different ways as well. It's an interesting thing, right? Because we see deliverance as being this one and done permanent thing when it happens sequentially. We have these small deliverances and then these big deliverances and these small captivities and these big captivities. They're all intertwined. A very worthwhile thing to dig into more. We read again that Nephi is a, a big fan of Isaiah. We mentioned that earlier on. But then Nephi delves into Isaiah deeply. And he delights in Isaiah's words. And he, more than anybody else in all of the Book of Mormon, records more of Isaiah's words than anybody. Because Isaiah saw a vision of the end time. Nephi saw a vision of the end time, just as Daniel did. But it seems that Nephi really draws on Isaiah, not only recording his words, but recording his own prophecies and likely sees himself as a type of Isaiah in trying to speak to the future and got to decode Isaiah's message and explain it as best he can to us. And so he's sitting there at this very interesting time in history, experiencing these things, writing things, seeing himself as a branch being broken off and their lives being literal fulfillment of God's words. And he says in the last days, where the people living there, they'll know that Isaiah's words are true and coming to pass because they'll they'll basically recognize those things. So I think in a way he he draws from what Isaiah does and puts those things into practice in his own life by being a kind of Isaiah in a sense as well. Now the next figures here we have, and again, this is a little bit of a stretch, but I'm going to include it in the list. And I'm I'm putting Aaron and her in this list. So a little back, background here. When they the Israelites were fighting the Amalekites, Moses, Aaron, and her, they go up to the top of a hill. And whenever Moses held up his hand, this staff in his hands, Israel prevailed. And whenever his hands came down again, Amalek prevailed. And instead of condemning Moses, Aaron and her sat him down, held up his arms for him so they could win. So they supported Moses instead of trying to supplant him. And 1 Nephi 16, 19, and 20, we see this. And it came to pass that we did return without food to our families, being much fatigued because of their journeyings. And they did suffer much for the want of food. And it came to pass Laman and Lemuel and the sons of Ishmael began to murmur exceedingly because of their sufferings and afflictions in the wilderness. And also my father began to murmur against the Lord their God. So this is bad. Everybody's complaining against God. They've been pushed, got into their limits, and nobody's really doing very well. And Lehi, he's with Laman and Lemuel. He's like, yeah, this stinks. <laughs> so what does Nephi do? Nephi does not condemn. Nephi does not murmur. Nephi says in verse 23, I, Nephi, did make out of, a wood, out of wood a bow and out of a straight stick an arrow. Wherefore, I did arm myself with a bow and arrow and a sling and stones. And I said unto my father, whither shall I go to obtain food? Now, interestingly enough, if you notice some of these word links that are happening here, 
could be potential word links. Could they could be coincidental? But in the story of Moses and Aaron and her, Moses had a staff and he held it up in his hands. And they specifically use the word hands. And here Nephi is taking wood of a bow and a straight stick. So he's got a stick or a staff. It's an arrow. It's not really a staff. But he said, I did arm myself with a bow and an arrow. So here we have Nephi's arms and some type in wood of some kind. And then he's arming himself with a sling and stones, just like David, who fought Goliath. Maybe there's an allusion there as well. Another little glimpse into David and Goliath. But here he is with his own arms, essentially supporting and holding up his father. Because And it says, I said unto my father, whither shall I go to obtain food? So he doesn't supplant his father. He sustains his father, just as Aaron and her sustained Moses. And it could very well be that Nephi's understanding of that experience of Aaron and her could have inspired him to not murmur against his father, but to find a way to lift up the arms of his father in his own way. And that's what he does. And so I said that is a little bit of a stretch because he's not mentioning this story. But I do find it interesting that there are some particular similarities here. Now we're going to go back to Moses again. This is when they arrive at Bountiful and Nephi's told to build a ship. But his brothers ridicule him and complain that they would have been better off staying in Jerusalem, that they've wasted all these years and they've given up so much on this ridiculous quest. Now, it's not really, it's not really hard to blame Laman and, Laman and Lemuel here. Imagine you're out in the desert and you have a tribe of at, at least at a minimum 30 people and you're, you've arrived at the seashore and now somebody says they're going to build a ship and you're going to travel across this vast ocean. I don't know if you've ever stood at the foot of an ocean, a vast, vast ocean, whether it's been the Atlantic, the Pacific, or even to a degree, the Gulf of Mexico. I grew up on the Gulf of Mexico. But when you stand at the foot of a sea or an ocean, and that beyond that is just miles and miles of nothing, it's extremely intimidating. And shipbuilding was not just something everybody knew how to do back then. It was extremely advanced. And to travel by ship from land to land was almost the equivalent today of building an aircraft and putting people in an aircraft. I mean, the basic mechanics of an aircraft are understood. Imagine you building an aircraft big enough to put your family and all your cousins and your mom and dad on, flying it through the sky and landing it at some unknown destination. This is essentially what Nephi is saying. Like the modern version of it would be something like that. I think even building a ship today, no, people don't know how to build ships. Like if we had to go and build one, and we've seen a lot of movies, and but to think that you could go out just with trees, no tools, no, no power tools, no hand tools, no saws, no axes, you're going to go and build an airplane and you're going to put your family in the airplane and fly it. So it's not only just building the thing, it's operating it correctly in a manner that's not going to kill everybody. And imagine you're on a quest and you're following the family patriarch out in the middle of nowhere. And, and then all of a sudden one of your younger siblings says, Hey, God told me I'm going to build an airplane. You guys want to help? You would, 
I think the vast majority would be like Layman and Lemuel. Like, what the heck is going on here? This is absolutely ridiculous. Why did we leave our lives? Why did we do this in the first place? So I'm not one to really get too hard on Layman and Lemuel. It's easy to do in the context of the story, but if we're likening the scriptures to ourselves, the vast majority of people would be more like Layman and Lemuel. They're the only people here that are being rational in the context of the story. Now, they didn't realize that God was the one asking them to do these things. And Nephi kept saying to them that, call upon God, go to him and he'll tell you, he'll let you know that this is, this is what we're doing. He'll speak peace to you just like he did with me, but they wouldn't do it. And that was the, the big problem. That was the, probably the big downfall is they would not go to God and get their own confirmation. And I, I think this is the, the foundation of their, their problem that they have in the whole narrative that they're a part of. So first Nephi 17, 26 through 29, Nephi says again, now that Moses was commanded of the Lord to do that great work, delivering the children of Israel out of Egypt, right? And that by his word, the waters of the Red Sea were divided hither and thither, and they passed through on dry ground. But you know that the Egyptians were drowned in the Red Sea, who were the armies of the Pharaoh. And ye also know that they were fed with manna in the wilderness. And ye also know that Moses, by his word, according to the power of God, which is in him, smote the rock. And there came forth water that the children of Israel might quench their thirst. And he goes on and on. It's a really powerful speech. And I could, you could picture in your mind, Nephi standing there speaking. And I would really encourage reading it. It's an incredibly like faith filled, powerful speech. And Nephi details all that God has done for their ancestors. And he concludes, and I said unto them, if God had commanded me to do all things, I could do them. If he should command me that I should say unto this water, be thou earth, it should be earth. And if I should say it, it would be done. And now if the Lord has such great power and has wrought so many miracles among the children of men, how is it that he cannot instruct me that I should build a ship? And I'm almost surprised that he didn't invoke Noah here, but that's maybe a possibility, right? Maybe there is a little bit of Noah in here of this shipbuilding crossing the sea. Because after all, it says uh, later on, came to pass on the morrow that after we had prepared all things, much fruit and meat from the wilderness, honey in abundance and provisions according to that which the Lord had commanded us, we did go down into the ship with all our loading and our seeds and whatsoever thing we had brought with us, everyone according to his age. Wherefore, we did go down into the ship with our wives and our children. And so... There's a little bit of Noah in this story, like trusting God to get into a ship, except this was a different type of ship. This ship that Nephi had, they could actually steer it. They navigated the ship. Whereas the ark, they just shut everything up and the seas came up. There didn't seem to be a way to maneuver or steer the ship. Whereas the ship Nephi built was guided by the Liahona, that same thing that guided them in the wilderness would guide them across the water. So they actually had to steer the ship in a particular direction. The Jaredites much earlier, their boats were much more like the ark in that the wind drove them and God specifically drove them. But in this case, it appears that they not only had to build the ship, build the tools to build the ship, 
but also steer and direct the ship as well. So there's a lot of involvement from them in this process. But just like Moses, Nephi is going back again saying, if God could have Moses do all of these things, then why could he not have us do something as simple, comparatively speaking, as building a ship? And so comparing those two things together is what Nephi does again. And so Noah's the other one I think is a little bit of a stretch. It doesn't say it specifically in there, but it's possible there may be some influence to Nephi and his own journey of faith. So now we look at Israel, which I think is typified in, in Lehi and then Joseph I think Nephi sees himself as a Joseph type figure and his father as an Israel type figure. Cause what Lehi does once they arrive in the promised land, just like Israel, he blesses his family and he gives each one of them a unique and special blessing. And he says to Laman, Lemuel and Sam, this is second Nephi one And all the sons of Ishmael, if you hearken unto the voice of Nephi, you shall not perish. And if you will hearken unto him, I leave unto you a blessing, yea, even my first blessing. So even through all of this, he says, if you just continue to hearken unto Nephi after he's gone, because he's he's getting old and he realizes he's going to die soon. He says, if you'll hearken to Nephi, you won't perish and you'll get to keep your birthright. That, But that's all you have to do is hearken unto his voice. But if you will not hearken unto him, I will take away my first blessing, yea, even my blessing and it shall rest upon him. And so it's conditional. If they listen to Nephi, they get to keep their blessing and they can rightfully rule. But if they don't hearken unto him, he'll take it away and give it to Nephi. And so this is the thing the Lamanites complain about throughout their entire history, that they were wronged in the wilderness by Nephi, that he stole from them, but yet they never go back to the words of their dying patriarch, that was all conditional upon them hearkening to Nephi, and they clearly do not do that. Anyway, we have these other correlations happening here where even Lehi is following the patterns of the ancients. So Lehi and Nephi, his son, they are following the patterns of scripture very closely. So the next is Solomon. This one's, I think, pretty obvious in a lot of ways because Nephi mentions it specifically like he has with Moses and others. But second Nephi five sixteen, and I Nephi did build a temple and did construct it after the manner of the temple of Solomon, save it were not built of so many precious things for if they, for they were not found upon the land, wherefore it could not be built like unto Solomon's temple, but the manner of construction was like unto the temple of Solomon and the workmanship thereof was exceedingly fine. So they did the best with what they followed the patterns of the ancients. And they tried to do better than they did. So Nephi remained righteous unto his death, but he did not get into the, the ways of David and Solomon, particularly with their many wives and concubines. In fact, Lehi received a commandment from the Lord that they were not to have many wives and concubines and only one wife. And Nephi kept this commandment. And so he departed from his ancestors in these ways and sought to emulate the good things they did, such as building the temple after the same pattern as them. So that's interesting. And again, I have on my list Isaiah again, but I already covered this about how 
Nephi is writing, seeing himself maybe as an Isaiah type figure and writing his own record and prophecies, just like Isaiah. Second Nephi 11.2, and now I Nephi write more of the words of Isaiah for my soul delighteth in his words. For I liken his words, I will liken his words unto my people and I will send them forth unto all my children for he verily saw my redeemer even as I have seen him. So just like Isaiah, Nephi says, Isaiah saw the Redeemer, and I have seen him as well. And so, again, Nephi is comparing himself with Isaiah. Now, the last one here, I think, is Samuel. This one, again, here is maybe not as clear as the others, but I think there are some very strong correlations to take a look at. So we go back to the Old Testament. God was the king of Israel. And they had leaders and priests and judges leading them, but they did not have a king because God was the king of Israel. But when Samuel, who was the judge at the time and leader, was getting older, he had appointed his own sons as Israel's leaders, but they were dishonest, they accepted bribes, and they also perverted justice. So in 1 Samuel 8, 4, all the elders of Israel gathered together. They came to Samuel at Ramah. And they said to him, you are old and your sons do not follow your ways. This happens in the Book of Mormon all the time, by the way. He says, now appoint a king to lead us, such as all the other nations have. And the Lord told Samuel, this is what he says, listen to all that the people are saying to you. It is not you they have rejected, but they have rejected me as their king. As they have done from the day I brought them up out of Egypt until this day, forsaking me and serving other gods, so they are doing to you. Now listen to them, but warn them solemnly and let them know that the king who will reign over them, what the king who will reign over them will claim as his rights. And he goes on this, down this road of explaining, if you choose a king, he's going to send your sons off to war, your daughter, he's going to do all these things. Claim these as his rights to do. And so when you, it's like when you pick up one end of the stick, you pick up the other end of the stick. He tries to tell them there's going to be consequences for doing that. Now, Nephi, 2 Nephi 5.18, it's 5.18.6.2 and Jacob 1.9, these three we're going to go into. It says, it came to pass that they would, that I should be their king. This is Nephi speaking, but I, Nephi, was desirous they should have no king. Nevertheless, I did for them according to that which is in my power. So he served them as if he was a king. He was like, well, I'll act in the role of it. But it doesn't appear like he took that title upon himself. And so 2 Nephi 6.2, Behold my beloved brethren, I, Jacob, Nephi's brother, having been called of God and ordained after the manner of his holy order, and having been consecrated by my brother Nephi, unto whom you look as a king or a protector, and on whom you depend for safety, etc. Even Jacob says, you look to my brother Nephi as a king or a protector. But then in Jacob 1.9 says, now when Nephi began to be old and he saw that he must soon die, wherefore he anointed a man to be a king and ruler over his people according to the reign of kings. Now this was not a son like Samuel had done. So Samuel appointed his own sons as the leaders. But they did a horrible job. They were dishonest and perverted justice. 
And it seems that Nephi was trying to depart from that by not anointing his son, but it says he anointed a man to be a king and rule over his people. And it could have been a son. But I feel like I would have said it was his son if that was the case. But it seems that Nephi sought to choose a wise person or somebody suitable that he thought could be a king. So in a way like Samuel, he's learning from Samuel. He's doing things different than Samuel. But just as Samuel anointed Saul, Nephi is realizing, maybe not knowing what else to do, he decides to start his own reign of kings. And just like Samuel, who is a leader and a judge in some ways, anoints a king. And so I think there are some similarities there. This was uh, Samuel anointed the first king of Israel, and Nephi anointed the first king among the Nephites, among the Nephite people. And they were named after Nephi to preserve his memory and the type of uh, leader that he was at the time. So I put all this out there to show a couple of things. One, that the power of going back to the scriptures and looking at the patterns of what those did in the past and not just focusing so much on one specific individual, but looking at all of their stories, all of their experiences, and from the perspective of who God is and what he does and why he does things for people, how he delivers them, how he sustains and strengthens them, and drawing strength from all of that collectively together and putting it into your own story and writing your own story and going out and doing things. But you can draw so much strength through what the people of old did. And now we have this incredible advantage of taking all of these collectively together, all of these individual powerful stories, looking at how Nephi wove them together into his own and then weaving Nephi's with all of these others, with all of these individuals in the Book of Mormon into our own story. And that's the beauty of scripture and why I love so much that we have the Book of Mormon because it allows us to see just more of how God interacts with people. And whenever we see God interacting with people, it reveals more about his character and his attributes, which is essential for us to understand because if we don't understand the character and attributes of God, we cannot have faith in him. And so the more we know his character and attributes, the stronger our faith can be and the mightier our faith can be as well. So all of these things collectively together, I think are interesting. And the other thing I want to throw out there for you as well is to consider what other ways, what other scriptural heroes or examples that Nephi may have been looking out for as well. I figure there may be some I've left out and it'd be interesting to see what those are. And if you happen to be on my blog, oneclimbs.com on this, please leave some comments and share your own stories or your own ideas of who else you think Nephi might've been drawing from. I'm sure I've left some out. It'd be really interesting to compile like a master list of all of these somewhere. But anyway, I hope you found that interesting and I definitely have more to share. I've had a ton of ideas this week that I plan on putting into podcast form. So hang in there with me and we'll continue exploring all of this together here at One Climbs.